You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. This week's episode is going to be a two-part episode on Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. Toulouse-Lautrec was an early influence of mine, and I have loved so much of his work, I had a hard time narrowing the field. So in part one, we discussed a bit of Lautrec's background and one of his lithographs of Jane Avril. And then next week, I'm going to release part two, where we continue our discussion of Toulouse-Lautrec's work. Specifically, we focused on At the Moulin Rouge, and then we circled back a little bit more to that Jane Avril print. It was sort of an organic conversation discussing a couple of his works and his style more broadly. And we made some connections to some other contemporaneous works that were influential on Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec's artistic development. So I hope you enjoy part one this week and tune in next week for the second half of our discussion on Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I've got Joey B. from the Blind Knowledge Network. Thank you very much for taking the time. Kyle, it is a pleasure. Thank you for having me, and I am hoping to learn something today from one of the best teachers I've ever met. (laughs) And from a subject I've never tried to understand. Well, I I think that is like the perfect way to summarize it, because I think uh, blind knowledge, if I recall correctly, that is a term that refers to things that are unknown but should be known, correct? That is correct, yes. The concept of blind knowledge, it's, it's the, it is the information out there that is un it's it's unknown it's unknown information we don't know and maybe we can't see it maybe it is out there but we haven't experienced it whatever it is it's blind to us we can't see it but once we have that information we we illuminate that information and we're able to per, uh, we're able to progress with our understanding of what was presented to us and then what the next um, subject matter will actually be 
Well, I always love to learn new things, and so I appreciate your taking the time to come on here, and whenever somebody is willing to slum it on my podcast, I want to make sure I plug their pluggables. Uh, You're launching your new podcast network at the end of this month, at the end of January 2022, and your website www.blindknowledge.com. Is that right? That's correct. And I just want to clear it up too. The podcast network is just one piece of blindknowledge.com. Blind knowledge is actually, it encompasses podcasters and their podcast. Very creative and talented podcasters, by the way. But we also encompass uh, digital content creators. So today's day and age, you know, TikTok, very popular. Snapchat, YouTube, these digital mediums, maybe they're long, maybe they're short, but that's their specialty. That's their art, their medium. But if you think of any kind of digital content, you're going to find that at blindknowledge.com. Cool. So you're doing all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, in addition to podcasts, you've got the the tickety talk and the Instagram stuff and all that stuff that, you know, I am not nearly cool enough to be into, but I appreciate that you are creating an artist collective that is supporting artists in all different media. I think that's a really cool endeavor. And I think that leads perfectly into what we're going to be talking about today, because while Henri de Toulouse, the track was not necessarily part of an artist collective, he was certainly influenced by his social scene. Um, He was born, of course, like all people were born, um, but he was born specifically on November 24th, 1864. And Interestingly, he was born to an aristocratic family, but he did not stay in that higher class station throughout his life. He is descended from Counts of Toulouse. That's where the Toulouse comes from in his name. His younger brother was born in 1867, but died a year later. And shortly after that, his parents sort of separated for a while. A nanny took care of him. And when he was eight, he went to live with his mother in Paris, and that's kind of where he started to learn to draw. A uh, family friend took um, took notice of his talent, uh, René Princetio. I'm sure that's wrong, but it was a French painter, and uh, it was a friend of his father's, you know, a you know, up there French painter who was known for his painting of horses specifically. Like he was an animal painter and he gave Lautrec some sort of informal lessons. And I I always find it interesting that like he was learning from this dude who was known for his paintings of horses because, you know, Toulouse-Lautrec was painting a lot of things, but like one of his early series was the circus. And we see some of these horses as prominent in, in those paintings. It's one of those things where I always love when I can see these, these things that someone picked up from, from here and from another place and how they get all these different things, different ideas mashed together to create something new. Um, But his background was not, not always the most pleasant as as much as we think like those people you know account he must have had it made he had sort of a strange genetic disorder and really i am not sure that anyone is entirely clear what was going on with him medically he had these oh. brittle bones if you've seen photos of him like he was a short man 
Very small, yes. And, you know, part of that was because he had a condition, I, and I'm not joking, some call it Toulouse-Lautrec syndrome. And I, to me, it, it always feels like really funny because like I, I, and it's not at all funny in reality, but I just picture this cartoonish version of him meeting with the doctors and the doctor <laughs> being like, I'm sorry to tell you, you've got Toulouse-Lautrec syndrome. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, like it's this weird situation, but um, modern like doctors say like it was probably this thing called pycnodisostosis, pycnodisostosis. He had to lose the Trek syndrome. Um, and some of the symptoms of this include like these dense but brittle bones. And he had really like short uh, distal uh, bones like in his fingers, like the last bone in your fingertips were unusually short. The oh. skull doesn't fuse quite right in inf infancy. So like that soft spot would remain open for a long time. The oh. collarbones were underdeveloped. Like he broke both his legs as a teenager. Um, that no doubt was causing some serious problems. But during that time recovering from those broken legs, those broken bones, he, you know, really took to painting and drawing and developing his skills in that arena. And I guess his mom was really enamored with this idea of him becoming a fine artist. And she supported that idea. She wanted him to be a, a great artist. But he wanted to be, he wanted to be an artist, but not the respectable type. He was really enamored with the bohemian scene in Montemart. Uh, it's this place where, like, a lot of the classes would mix. That's where the famous Moulin Rouge was, although it wasn't quite so famous right from the opening. It was very popular early on because it was a place where people could come together and just party. And they would let their hair down and like they were dancing. I mean, the can-can dance was invented there. Um, they put a, a, a they put a dance floor right next to the stage so the patrons could dance along with the professionals. Like just if wow. the spirit moves them, I, I imagine on some level it was like a much classier version of like a fish concert, you know? Okay. Um, okay. and That's to go like, with that kind of surreal vibe in my mind, they had an elephant in the garden, an elephant, a real, elephant. a real elephant. My goodness. Yes. My goodness. Um, wow. Wow. It, it's interesting things happen in a, a Parisian nightclub where they're serving absinthe, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, when you describe it, I was thinking maybe an old school or uh, a 19th century Studio 54. That's where you can kind of uh, experiment maybe a little more and just kind of be free. Totally. You know? And uh, Toulouse Lautrec was the Andy Warhol of his day, just hanging out, living in the club scene. Yes, yes. I can see that, too. So different, but yet so mainstream. Yeah, and he was feeding off that energy, and Toulouse-Lautrec was also kind of getting into the pop art before there was such a, a term. Like, he was making prints and posters and advertisements, whereas Andy Warhol was copying prints and posters and advertisements. 
And I think part of this was because the artists he was working with in this that would tell him, like, go out, find your inspiration. And he would go to the cafes and he would meet other people and he would talk to other people and he would get these ideas. And it's... I imagine this was like the the hipster neighborhood of Paris in that day. You know, Ooh. it was yeah, it was a little bit up and coming. Everybody was an artist or a philosopher or a writer of some sort. That they probably had day jobs. They were probably studying, or they were probably supported by their parents. In the case mm. of Henri, you know, yeah, yeah, Silver Spoon. A, a little bit. I mean. He faced some backlash from from his family because of the choices that he was making. Um, I guess when he started to use the Toulouse the Trek name in in his works, and initially he was doing stuff under sort of a pseudonym, but when he signed his his name on his works because it had like that count lineage name to it and that wow. family name. Um, Mm -hmm. like his father was irate and like disinherited him Uh and like his uncle was equally upset and like destroyed some of his works. Um, but his mom, as moms are, are, are typical to do was like, you know what? That's my son. And I'm still going to support him. And she, she still supported him financially and kind of slipped him some money to make sure that he had food to eat and all that sort of stuff. Good mom. Thank thank goodness for mom right there. I know. I like so many stories. Thank goodness there was a good mom who did not <laughs> abandon her child, you know. Yeah. I was thinking Kyle, when you were introducing us to Henri with with his health condition and growing up in an aristocratic family and having that, you know, everything was handed to him. He probably didn't have to work much, but then he got he had this um this condition where he was in all, maybe in a lot of pain. That's traumatic. If you're in a lot of pain and you're around people that are always relaxed and maybe they're always getting pleasure or maybe they're just always well off and they're not feeling pain, I would think that maybe somewhere he wanted to be around people that were feeling that kind of not perfect kind of life, like maybe a little bit of a struggle. Because really, he was struggling to stay alive in a way. Well, he was. He really was. Yeah, and I think I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think everybody, humans are by their nature social animals. And mm-hmm. I think everybody wants to find their people that they can relate to, that they can empathize with. And who can yeah. empathize with them and see them for who they are and understand their struggles. And understand their struggles. Absolutely. We all want someone to understand who we are, no matter our background. It's we want us we want to be able to connect with someone on the same level that understands, that gets it, um, and just is uh just on the same spiritual plane, I guess you could say. Yeah, and for for Henri de Toulouse the Trek, that place and those people were in Montmartre in Paris in France. Um, you know, he met friends that he would stick with for the rest of his life. And one of them was a dancer, Jane Averill, who had her own health conditions. Um Women were not always getting the best treatment. So like she was treated for uh, she was treated by a doctor who was an expert in like 
hysterical women's problems or something like that. But she had some sort of a, a physical ailment that caused tics and sort of convulsions. And she was able to really overcome that physical oddness or embrace that physical strangeness, those tics and everything. Um, and she became a professional dancer and a well-known one. She was well-known for those strange jerking movements that she would make as she danced. She and Henri were lifelong friends. He made posters of her. He made paintings of her. Um, but he also met fellow painters, Emile Bernard, Vincent van Gogh. He stayed in that scene in Montemart for like 20 years. Wow. Wow. He was the scene almost. If you if- I he he really was a big part of that scene because he was not only hanging out there, he was publicizing it. He was making lithographs for the clubs, for the Moulin Rouge, for um, Jane Avril, public, uh, publicizing her cabaret and helping to boost her fame and her stature. Uh, he was kind of just all over that scene. People there were responding, and I think. It's probably a situation on on some level of, you know, he found his audience and he stayed with that audience and he supported those clubs and they supported him. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night so kyle do you mind if i ask you just a quick question for my own edification and probably others yeah. too this this word that you keep using lithograph you know what what is that exactly okay so like a lithograph is a printmaking process um it's a really old printing process uh, think of a think of it as like a stamp okay but lith- okay. uh, lithographs were traditionally done on stones. And I guess one of the big ideas is like oil and water, grease and water, they don't mix. So sure, you yeah. draw the design with something sort of greasy so that like the water soluble inks will be repelled in those areas. It's kind of like getting the the image on there. So like the ink only goes into certain areas on the stone and you can make lots and lots of copies of it with pretty good detail that way. Wow. 
It's it's amazing to even think that they back in the 19th century there could be any kind of mass production, especially with with this dynamic quality. It's uh it's kind of mind blowing when you think about it. And and it's it's a pain as somebody who did like a very <laughs> little bit of it, but like traditional stone lithography, like you got to make sure that stone is perfectly smooth and flat. You have to like, after you've made a, a print and you want to change the image on it, you got to grind the stone down again. Grind down. Whoa. Like a, a, Whoa. Yeah. You got to grind it down a little bit. Like it's, <sighs> it's, it's not like the easiest of processes, labor intensive and you know for the multicolored images that you would see there um you essentially have to make different stones for each color and so like you print it with the black and then you get another stone that's going to fill in the orange shape on the dress and you you make that image and you print on top of the existing print and so um, wow. that's how you get like, the multicolors. It's like screen printing. It is, almost. it is like screen printing just harder. Oh, oh, I would think so. Especially with a stone. Yeah. Is it a certain kind of stone? And how do you file it? Do you use a nail file or do you use a pickaxe? Like, how do you even do that? Wow. Uh, it's, um, it's this, it's really hard to like in an audio medium, it's this thing, it like kind of spins around. So like, you've got this thing that like it, I, I would, I, the best I could describe it, it's almost like a buffer, you know, like, you know, it's a spin, okay. it's a circular motion that you got to keep moving around the stone because you don't want to wear it down more in one area than another. That's very labor intensive. That's a lot of time too. I mean, you have to be committed to want to do this especially with stones but then you got to think too you know that was their technology that was the way they did it yeah you know, and i mean he like, was living in a time when they were advancing in that technology so what he was doing felt probably easier than what people were doing before i mean i'd have to look up the dates on when they did it but you know they were they also do lithography on metal plates and stuff like that and i think i want to say 19th century is around the time that people were starting to develop that a little bit more and that's part of the reason that stuff was being mass produced a little bit more and wider circulation and I think that gives us a good sort of natural segue and transition to looking at some of his work. I've got I got two pieces here. I was torn. I couldn't decide which one to go for. I've got one as one of his iconic lithographs of Jane Avril, famous dancer we've mentioned, who was part of his social network. And, but then I also keep coming back to At the Moulin Rouge, one of his most famous paintings, or maybe it's just famous to me because... I've always seen it at the Art Institute of Chicago. Do you have a preference? Do you have one you like better? Me? I don't have a preference. You know, to be quite honest, I'm not really familiar with with them at all. Um, you know, I know about Moulin Rouge, really, from the song and the movie, <laughs> uh, and the music video. and um, But I want to learn. I definitely want to learn, for sure. Cool. So maybe we'll... Uh... We'll see where this takes us. We'll uh, start off with the uh, Jane Great. Avril print because that is one thing that he is pretty well known for is his lithographs that are still popular today. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. We got to dive right in. 
So we have the Jane Avril print here from 1893, and we see Avril dressed in her dance outfit. She is holding up her leg, doing sort of a can-can dance. It's like her signature dance move to publicize her cabaret show. What's jumping out to you about this piece? It's like an organic mixture, too. Yeah. Like the, um, you don't see a lot of right angles. You know, you see yeah. bent um, kind of wobbly almost. It is very wobbly, which I think is really interesting because like she was a little bit wobbly herself, which is a really odd thing for a dancer. Hmm. Why is that? Well, think about it. Like you're a dancer. Your whole thing is how your body moves and you have these spasms and ticks and like jerky movements, but she leaned into it. And, like, she owned it. And, like, um, she was known for this. They they gave her nicknames. Um, like, one of her nicknames was that after, like, best. Dynamite. It was, or, like, her dynamite. nickname was... Um, wow. Like, one of her nicknames was La, Min- La Milanite, um, which is after an explosion. The other was La Estrain. La Estrain. I cannot do... Pr- I can't... I can't do no. French. Um, I was trying to pronounce it, this for like a half hour, and I don't I think know. I got it right either. But I got the Henri. I got yeah. you there, man. <laughs> Henri de Toulouse the Trek. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. It really is. But like her name was the strange one. You know, the French term for the strange one, less strange. Okay. I mean, it's it's just it's really interesting. And, you know, you get that wobbly sort of strangeness from this composition because of the angles because of you know he's trying to do a little bit of the sort of calligraphic style of like japanese woodcuts and stuff like that but it's just it's a really unique thing and it, it was really popular but like i i saw one of the critics said that um you know thousands of these posters go up like overnight and people loved it but it kind of made them uncomfortable at the same time. Like it, oh. it's one of those things where it, like it hit a nerve with people in his work because it wasn't the formal composition that you would see in the salon, the grand salons and stuff like that. It was raw. It was taking you into the dance halls. It was getting you right in, in the action. Like it has this feel of, that snapshot, the authentic dancer in action. It does. It's vibrant. You know, it has movement right in there. And that's just, you can't template that. that that's not something you can take a tape measure or a ruler. That's natural. Um, just the way of the world right there. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. You know what I really like about this, though? It's the angle. Yeah. It's- Angle. It's not your usual like, okay, you have your overhead or maybe it's um, from the perception of someone sitting at a table in the dining room. It actually looks like someone walking by and just looking quickly, a quick glance of what's going on like this. Um, it, just the scene. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the angles I find, I think that's a really good observation of like these angles that create that sense of movement because like for the artist's cheat sheet, the angles, angled lines do help to create a sense of action within a composition. But also the fact that, as you said, 
she's the bright colored focal point. It's like there's a spotlight on her because the musician that we can only see part of, we see like the hand on the bass, um, you know, that's in shadow. That's right. like, that's cool. a silhouette that's darkened because it's, you know, in the pit off stage. And I love that connection to like, it feels like you're just walking by the, the stage. Mm. And I think that's probably kind of true to Latrec's experience at that time. And this is where we're going to wrap up part one of our discussion on Toulouse Lautrec and tune in next week for another episode of Who Arted, as well as remember Wednesday, we've got a new episode of the Art Smart podcast, the new spinoff podcast focusing on the elements of art and principles of design. Please do me a favor, follow and rate it on your favorite podcast app. And just in case you're not sick of hearing from me yet, I've got a new Fun Fact mini episode coming up this Friday as well. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.